Creston in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Glad to be with you. We've got uh, two hours here talking about the things that matter most. And let me uh, go over some of those. You have some idea where we're heading uh, on today's program. Uh, I enjoyed my interview yesterday uh, with John Borsch, uh, his book, Loving God's Children. I want to talk a little bit about that uh, follow-up because this, the, we have this issue about gender ideology, transgender ideology. And it's important that we meet the arguments head-on in the best, most rational, most empirically sensitive way we can. But there's also a very deep pastoral uh, issue here, and that is we're dealing with people, people who are sometimes confused. And, uh, you know, you have to—on the one hand, you've got this— kind of public argument going on. On the other hand, you've got the need for pastoral concern, and those two don't often work together very well. I thought John did a great job, but I'll have some comments on this whole fight over transgender ideology. Also coming up today, Peggy Stanton joins us. We continue our look at upcoming gospel uh, hearing. John the Baptist is the focus of this coming Sunday's gospel. And then we, we also share a, a, a story that's been told a few times before, but Peggy's got some outstanding quotes from uh, servicemen who participated in the uh, truce, the Christmas truce during World War One, And then we're going to be joined by a new guest, uh, Patricia Odie Murphy from the Diocese of Toledo. And she'll be talking about how what it means to live a virtuous life. And then we'll talk with Dr. Matthew Bunsen uh, about a number of stories, including some new changes uh, to the regulations about cremation. But first, let's get the headlines. Thank you, Al, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Wednesday, December 13th. It's the Feast of St. Lucy. And today's news is brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance for seniors in need at visitingangels.com. The Supreme Court will take up another high-stakes abortion case, this time concerning the abortion pill Mifeprestone. The court will review a lower court's ruling that banned the abortion pill because of its potential to curtail the use of the drug that accounts for over half of all U.S. abortions. The case is expected to be the most consequential abortion case since Dobbs v. Jackson overturned Roe v. Wade. Pope Francis is celebrating the 54th anniversary of his ordination and is also reflecting on plans for what comes next. In an interview last night, he said he has been working with the Vatican to simplify the church's papal funeral rites. 
Unlike most contemporary popes who have been buried in the Vatican crypt, Francis plans to be buried in St. Mary Major Basilica, one of the oldest and most prominent Marian shrines in the West. He would be the first pope to be buried there since Clement IX in 1669. More from Matthew Bunsen later in today's program. Israel has started pumping seawater in Hamas's network of tunnels in Gaza. Israeli forces say Hamas used the tunnels to move around the battlefield and to store rockets and ammunition. Israel and the U.S. were among 10 countries that voted against a United Nations General Assembly resolution demanding a humanitarian ceasefire the same day President Biden issued his hardest criticism of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu over what he called indiscriminate bombing by Israel. And longtime New England Patriots coach Bill Belichick is reportedly leaving the organization at the end of the season. NBC Sports says the Patriots made the decision back in November. Belichick led the Patriots to six Super Bowl wins over two decades. The team is currently 3-10. From the AveMariaRadio.net News Desk, I'm Dan McGraw. And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Yesterday, I hope you heard uh, my interview with John Bursch. Uh, he has an excellent book called Loving God's Children. It looks at the church and gender ideology. And uh, I found John was compassionate, earnest, uh, winsome. His grip on the issues was firm. His study, his faith uh, were seamlessly integrated. He made good use of various bishops' pastorals on gender ideology. I'll tell you, I, that, I didn't expect that. After all, most Catholics don't and won't read magisterial documents, even from the Pope, never mind the Archbishop of St. Louis or Oklahoma City. But John did read them. Uh, as an accomplished lawyer, he could masterfully carry on a discussion debate with a trans-affirming opponent, but he'd also be good talking uh, with parents about an adolescent who identifies as transgendered. Now, I'm talking here about sane parents, I'm not talking about the mother who boasted that her four-year-old was trans. She's like the person who tells you that her cat is a vegan. Everyone knows who's making the decision. It's not the kid and it's not the cat. So I believe John would excel in lecture and debate, discussion, advice giving, and I'm looking forward to seeing how the Lord uses him on this issue. But after the interview, um, I went home and rewatched. The 30 for 30, ESPN 30 for 30 documentary titled Renee. I've mentioned this in the past, but Renee refers to the transsexual Renee Richards, formerly Richard Raskin, born 1934, star athlete, scouted by the Yankees, um, a dashing Yale alpha male. According to a former college sweetheart, he was a great makeout artist uh, for the uninitiated. That means he was a great kisser and more in the backseat of his daddy's Chevy. Uh, I bet I haven't heard the phrase makeout artist since I was 13 or 14, but Richard Raskin was one. And by the way, I, I have to say, through this commentary, I'm going to refer to Richard Raskin as he and Renee Richards as she, because in a commentary, juggling the pronouns confuses listeners. Um, but So there's no... It's purely linguistic uh, etiquette that I'm using here to make sure things are heard properly. But Richard, after being raised by an eccentric, domineering mother, very strange woman, after 40 years of inner torment, Richard undergoes sex assignment surgery. 
leaves his son, went to California, undertook professional tennis. Richard had been reborn as Rene and fought to enter the 1977 U.S. Open as the first transgender tennis player. Yeah, controversy followed. Competitors complained about unfair advantages. You know, she was 6'2", 6'1", a size 12 shoe, broad shoulders, male musculature, and she refused to take a chromosomal test. And listen to this. She claimed that it couldn't tell the truth about her femininity. Her biology, she insisted, had no necessary link to her gender. And so she went to court. And in 1977, the New York Supreme Court ruled in her favor. So in that, that courtroom, that in that courtroom, Richards may have had her last satisfying solo victory. Her professional tennis career sputtered along for a few years. And she found status only as a doubles partner. And while ESPN documents the sports contra- controversy, it also very nicely and simultaneously chronicles a grim, bumpy life of conflict and contradiction. There's a loss of a thriving eye surgery practice on Madison Avenue. There's divorce. There's abandonment of a son who had a testosterone-rich father on a Monday and an estrogen-laced mom on a Tuesday. Without any awareness of the irony, she laments, I never had the same kind of love that Richard had for women. So something got lost. Something got lost. Get a chance, watch ESPN's 30 for 30's profile of Renee. I I find it fascinating. Uh, One might think that today she would be basking in glory. I mean, puberty blockers and transsexual are words that have now entered the common vocabulary. But she's not. She's baffled by today's adolescents who proudly identify as trans. Her surgery, she insists, was not a choice. It was not cool. It was a compulsion. I couldn't not do it, she said. However hard I tried, I could not control the force that drove me. You know, today's trans social contagion, you know, to be cool, is absolutely alien to her experience. She doesn't see herself as the grand crusader or pioneer. In fact, she seems beaten down by many of her uh, personal choices over the years. She's written at least two books, and one of them, No Way Renee, has a telling chapter. It's called Was It a Mistake? And while she doesn't say she regrets the surgery, uh, again, it was a matter of compulsion, she does list a ream of regrets that followed the surgery. Uh, The regrets include violation of her Jewish faith, include abortion, not marrying the one woman who might have changed his future, and plenty more. Um, and this reminds me, this is a story, again, which you don't, it, it has been written about in the past, but it's not, it does not part of the conversation regarding transgenderism today, nor is the story of David Reimer. David was the subject of the BBC documentary, Dr. John Money and the Boy with No Penis, and then John uh, Calopinto's book, As Nature Made Him, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Girl. Uh, Renee Richards' story and David Reimer's story are very different, but they're ignored by transgender advocates. For them, that is the advocates, Renee might serve as a distant, silent icon, but they don't show her melancholy, they don't show her wounded humanity. 
And they may remember John Money as an academic pioneer in gender studies and sexology. But his work didn't produce happy endings. John Money doesn't give the transgender activists heartwarming stories. You know, stories of isolated gender dysphoric adolescents who go under the knife and emerge from the surgical gauze like a butterfly from the chrysalis flying off to freedom. Money doesn't give them narratives of emancipation and self-invention. And yet, Renee and Money do illustrate our thesis. Their stories are not heroic stories of self-discovery. Their stories are stories of desperate males. One submits to a compulsion that destroys his family, his medical practice, his professional reputation, and his capacity for romance. The other is the story of a disfigured boy, eagerly exploited by an ambitious academic who needed a human lab rat to demonstrate his pet theory that gender was completely malleable. You know, while, while John Money was accumulating 65 professional honors, awards, and degrees, his theories were leading to suicide and despair. Victor Hugo, you know, who wrote Les Miserables, also wrote that one can resist the invasion of armies, but one can't resist the invasion of ideas. True. We can, however, tell stories that demonstrate that some ideas don't lead to abundant life or human flourishing. Or in Renee's words, something got lost. Something got lost. She told People magazine, better to be an intact man functioning with 100% capacity uh, than to be a transsexual woman who is an imperfect woman. In the same interview, she wished for something that could have prevented the surgery. Quote, what I said was if there were a drug, some voodoo, any kind of mind-altering magic remedy to keep the man intact, that would have been preferable. But there wasn't. And then, as I said, she lists her regrets. Listen to them. They're shockingly honest. I regret that circumstances turned me into a transsexual, whether through nature or nurture. I regret that I posed such a threat to my sister that she contributed to my condition. I regret that I developed the urge to start dressing as a girl and fantasizing about being one. I regret that I couldn't fight off the urge. I regret that I did not have the courage to go against family pressure and make a life for myself in athletics. It might have saved me. I regret that I did not reach my full potential in medicine. The psychic energy I might have put into medical research was spent coping with my personal problems. I didn't say earlier, but uh, he, he was a star. He, he was a star in everything that he did, uh, the academic world and also the athletic world. Uh, who knows what he could have achieved athletically or what he could have achieved in terms of uh, research. I regret that I loved women, not men. I've been in love three times, each time with a woman. As Renee, I have never loved a man in the way Richard loved those three women. I regret most deeply that one of those women had an abortion because I let my psychoanalyst talk me into allowing it. I might have succeeded as a man with this beloved woman, if not for that abortion. I regret what I did to my son. His pain was immeasurable, and he still suffers from the loss of his father as he knew him. The confusion and shame I put him through have been awful, and he'll carry those scars for a lifetime. 
I regret, on religious grounds, I am a Jew. The Torah forbids the sorts of things I have done. I carry that guilt. Finally, I regret being a facsimile. I think I'm a pretty good one, but I will never be more than a fax, a woman with a Y chromosome. No ovaries, no uterus, no capacity to bear children. I can only add that I did the best I could. And I regret that all the public... This is my regret now. (laughs) Sorry. Let me switch from Renee's regrets to my regret. And I regret that all the public chatter about transgenderism ignores the kind of brutal honesty that Renee Richards has brought to the discussion. I don't know why she seems to be consistently ignored. It's true that she doesn't want to be part of the pack. She doesn't want to be called upon for advice. But her story is a public story. She made it a public story. And it's there to be properly used, which is what I'm trying to do. I mean, she speaks not from some idealized ideology of, you know, transgenderism. She speaks from her lived experience. No matter where you stand in this transgender issue, we should listen to the experience of Renee Richards. That up-close experience uh, really gives you pause for thought, Uh, no matter where you stand. And I think, of course, uh, as a Catholic, that her story illustrates that if you go the way of the Lord, you will flourish. And if you rebel against the way of the Lord, something gets lost. I'm Al Cresto. Father Benedict Groeschel. Ah, oh, I love reverence. Wherever I go in the world, I usually go to visit the religious buildings. And no matter what I see, I see reverence. Or I've been in temples and mosques where I saw more reverence and awe of God than I see in Christian churches, even sometimes in Catholic churches. Oh, yes, let me say it. When I was a boy, Catholics were much more reverent and respectful in church. You never, ever spoke in church. I was a young priest. A man had a heart attack at the beginning of Mass. I stopped the Mass. We prayed for the man while the police were coming, the ambulance. They removed him from the church. He didn't die. Not one word was spoken. The police officers and the ambulance attendants who came whispered respect. I wish it were true today. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. What does the Tenth Commandment condemn? When the Lord God told us not to covet our neighbor's goods, he denounced envy, avarice, and greed as the root of theft, robbery, and fraud. Greed, the Catholic Catechism tells us, is the desire to amass earthly goods without limit. Avarice arises from a passion for riches and the power that attends to their possession. He who loves money never has money enough says the Roman Catechism. The Tenth Commandment also requires us to banish envy from our hearts, reminding us that the devil's envy of God brought death into the world. Envy is defined as sadness seeing another's goods, accompanied by the immediate desire to possess those goods. Note, our Lord placed being poor in spirit at the top of the list of his eight Beatitudes. 
This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. We, uh, again, weekly, we try to take a, get a preview of Sunday's Gospel reading, and Peggy Stanton leads us in that conversation. Peggy is the author of From the White House to the White Cross. She's a dame of the Order of Malta, was ABC News' first female Washington correspondent, and has hosted many programs on Ave Maria Radio, including the Malta Minute with the Catechism. In fact, uh, that is now a new book called The Order of Malta, Minutes with the Catechism, and it's being uh, not only produced in the uh, English-speaking world, but a number of other countries as well. And Peggy, good to have you again. Thank you, Al. So well, good to be with you. And uh, let us let me read uh, the Gospel reading for Sunday, and then we'll get to some reflection on it. John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, verses 19 through 28. A man named John was sent from God. He came for testimony to testify to the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to testify to the light. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to him to ask him, Who are you? He admitted and did not deny it, but admitted, I am not the Christ. So they asked him, What are you then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? So we can give an answer to those who sent us. What do you have to say for yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the desert, make straight the way of the Lord. As Isaiah the prophet said, some Pharisees were also sent. They asked him, 
Why then do you baptize, if you are not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but there's one among you whom you do not recognize, the one who's coming after me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. This happened in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Great you story. Know, yes. Well, you know, it's uh, isn't it interesting that um, John is such a great prophet and great saint? He merits two gospels in a row. Yeah. You know, we had we had him last week, and now we have a focus on him again. And I mean, Jesus says he said none is greater on on uh, earth or greater in the kingdom than John the Baptist. Right. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets, and by Jesus' words, appears to be the greatest of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, well, you know, we reflected last week of what, whatever drew people out to see this man yeah. in camel's hair yeah. and leather belt. So there was a greatness that emanated even <laughs> through, the, through the air. Mm-hmm. Um, paragraph 438 in the Catechism uh, focuses on uh, the fact that Jesus' messianic consecration reveals his divine mission. For the name Christ implies he who anointed, he who was anointed, and the very anointing with which he was anointed. The one who anointed is the Father, the one who was anointed is the Son, and he was anointed with the Spirit. Hmm. So we have the whole Trinity operating there. Who is the anointing? His eternal messianic consecration was revealed during the time of his earthly life at the moment of his baptism by John when God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power that he might be revealed to Israel as its Messiah. His works and words will manifest him as the Holy One of God. Hmm. And then paragraph 613 talks about Christ's death is both the paschal sacrifice that accomplishes the definitive redemption of men through the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and the sacrifice of the new covenant which restores man to communion with God by reconciling him to God through the blood of the covenant which was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. So there, you know, that twofold mission, we think of, you know, the where um, he takes away the sin of the world, but he also restores man's communion with right. God. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we, you know, we, we talked about these paragraphs uh, last week, but they might, and uh, as we're focusing on this gospel, do you think they might bear sure. repeating? Sure, yeah. I, I think there was a man this is uh paragraph seven seventeen there was a man sent from God whose name was John. John was filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb by Christ himself, whom the Virgin Mary had just conceived by the Holy Spirit. So Mary's visitation to Elizabeth thus became a visit from God to his people. I love that. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> that is really yeah, I had, fantastic. Yeah, I had, I just had not uh, focused on uh, in, in that yeah. perspective. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have John the Baptist, in a sense, dancing in Elizabeth's womb. 
as Mary, the Ark of the right. Covenant, approaches. Right. It reminds me of David dancing before the Ark of the oh, Covenant. Oh, right, right. Yeah, in the... Well, you know, here, here's a question, though, Al. We have John dancing in the womb, mm-hmm. so that's supposed to signify he recognized yeah. the Messiah. Yeah. But then we have him later uh, asking the question. Well, then when Jesus appears and John baptizes him, John, uh, John seems to clearly know exactly who Jesus is. But then later, when he's in prison, yeah. he sends word, are you the one or do we need to look for another? I, uh, I, I think that is that's very similar to, uh, to all of us. God can do great things in our lives. But then, of course, we come down off the mountaintop and we end up in the usual uh, oppression or resistance or darkness um, that comes sometimes in our lives. Mm-hmm. And we, we wonder, uh, mm-hmm. was, that, was that experience that I had with God uh, authentic or was I fooling myself? And I think here John the Baptist maybe wasn't counting on um, being imprisoned like that. And he thought that he's announcing the coming of the Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, the kingdom was going to be established. Mm-hmm. He, he may have made, to some degree, the same mistake that the apostles later made in mm-hmm. Acts chapter 1, where mm-hmm. they asked Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom now? Mm-hmm. And he said, well, it's not up to me to do that. Uh, it's up to my Father who is in heaven. And I think maybe John the Baptist was in a similar place. I thought this was going to have the kingdom. I was yeah. I was expecting the kingdom, yeah. Yeah. and what I got was Herod's prison. Right. You know? yeah. That's not what I anticipated. And, and it looks like they're going to chop my head off. Yeah. <laughs> so he wants to know. He wants re, He wants to be. He wants Jesus to reaffirm his messianic mission, so John can buoy himself up. You might say, for what is going to come, which is his execution. That's a great explanation, Al. Yeah. Really, I mean, that makes so much sense. Yeah. Uh, as you say, he, here he is, you know, he, he's been out there, and people have been coming to him and listening to him, yeah. and Jesus came and all of that, and then all of a sudden he's in prison and yeah. facing, uh, he must have even known before they went in there with the axe yeah. that, that he was, how, how dangerous things were for him, right. and right. Uh, he would be wondering. You're yeah. right. Absolutely. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, then uh, paragraph 719 says that John the Baptist is more than a prophet. In him, the Holy Spirit concludes his speaking through the prophets. John completes the cycle of prophets begun by Elijah. Mm, very good. He proclaims the imminence of the consolation of Israel. He is the voice of the consoler who is coming as the spirit of truth will also do, John came to bear witness to the light. And then again, it goes back to what you're saying. He came to bear, he thought that was his mission. Yeah, right. Um, in John's sight, the spirit comes, brings to completion the careful search of the prophets and fulfills the longing of the angels. He on whom you see, there we talked about this, the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And this is, quote, this is all John saying this. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Behold the Lamb of God. Mm. Yeah, yeah. 
So when again in seven paragraph 720 says, finally, finally, with John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit begins the restoration to man of the divine likeness, prefiguring what he would achieve, would achieve with and in Christ. John's baptism was for repentance with baptism in water, and the Spirit, baptism in the Spirit, will be a new birth. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah uh, again, the, we get this Sunday, we get a, another look at the ministry of John the Baptist, mm-hmm. uh, who's, again, a kinsman to Jesus. Yeah. yeah. Did they, Do you think, I also wondered, I was thinking to myself, do, did they... Uh, you know, you do see artists love to depict the two of them as little kids together or mm-hmm. babies together. But did they, after Mary visited Elizabeth and so forth, did they get together? I mean, there was a... a you, you would think so, right? I mean, you know, they... Mary and Elizabeth um, shared insight into the divine plan. Right. And I can't imagine... Um, they would have <clears throat> avoided one another. I think it was only natural that they would have hung out together. <laughs> John saying, well, I'm a prophet. Are you the Messiah? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> How do we play? I, I'm not sure I can imagine the conversations. but you know. <laughs> if, they, if they did know, or and of course it's never been totally established how much Jesus knew because he stripped himself of his... He, yeah, he divinity. set aside his divine prerogatives, uh, yeah. but he 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 was he was conscious. There's a theological um, fight about the self consciousness of Jesus and whether he uh, whether he was ignorant of his mission at some point along the way. And I don't think you can say that. I think you have to say he was in fact aware of his mission from the start. Not Mary may not have figured it all out. But Jesus did, and then, I always but, felt that way. Yeah. yeah, and you you have the question, of course, what is the relationship between Jesus's human knowledge, yeah, and his uh, divine status? Because Luke says that he grew in wisdom mm. and stature in the sight of God right. and man. So exactly how that plays out in terms of his self consciousness uh, is debated. But the church is pretty clear that Jesus was self was conscious of his uh, divine mission and his stature before God. Well, you have him in the temple at age 12. Right. Astounding uh, the leaders. we got the music coming up on okay. us. You want to stay for a little longer? Sure. All right. Peggy Stanton with me. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Finding health care for yourself and your family can be isolating and confusing. That's why the Catholic Health Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering Christ-centered health sharing for individuals and families, along with new wellness services to help heal and restore your whole person, spirit, mind, and body. Visit cmfcuro.com to find out more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, 
unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. 60 on 10 with Monsignor Charles Pope. The Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's goods. This commandment is similar to the Ninth because it uses the word covet, which means to inordinately or inappropriately desire something. And therefore, related to this are concepts that are familiar to us, such as greed or avarice, which is the undue passion for riches and power. Likewise, envy and jealousy are related here. In jealousy, you have something that I want, but I want it inappropriately or excessively. Envy, however, is a very dark thing because it wants to destroy that which is good in another person because it makes me look bad by comparison. And so in all these ways, the Lord is asking us to look very carefully to our desires because they can grow too expansive and lead us into very grave sins. The Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's goods. For more about the Ten Commandments, visit EWTNRC.com. Christ is the Answer, with Father John Ricardo. John chapter 11, verses 21 to 26. This is the story of Lazarus. Lazarus has died. Lazarus is one of his best friends. Just before this passage, we hear the news that Martha and Mary send word to Jesus that the one you love is sick. And the next line in the scripture is, Now because Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, he stayed where he was. His friend's in need. He can heal. They've seen him heal before. And yet somehow, because he loves him, he stays. And Lazarus dies. And then Jesus shows up three days later and is greeted by Martha and Mary, who confront him with the words, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would never have died. Rather applicable for many of us in our lives. We ask the Lord to do one thing because we're certain it is what we think is best, when in fact he has something which far surpasses what we ask for. The challenge is, in waiting for that to happen, we go through very trying times, which oftentimes makes us wonder, does he really care? Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta with Peggy Stanton, author from the White House to the White Cross. We were just discussing this upcoming gospel reading and, uh, again, the role of John the Baptist, the the role of the Holy Spirit in um, uh, illuminating John's consciousness and also uh, bearing witness uh, to the incarnate word, uh, John's beautiful statement, Behold the Lamb of God. Um there is a story, though, mm-hmm. uh, which talks. One can 
it's not hard to see it as a work of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, this comes out of World War One, right? Right. And, uh, you reminded me of it earlier today. Go ahead, and then let's let's hear about it. Yeah, I looked it up uh, to get all the facts on the internet, and um, it's it's a fascinating and wa- heartwarming story to uh, think of it this Christmas time, because according to one account, roughly a hundred thousand British and German troops were involved in what was an informal secession of hostility along the Western Front. That's a lot. Yeah, and this is how it began. This story tells it. Late on Christmas Eve, 1914, men of the British Expeditionary Force heard German troops in the trenches opposite them singing carols and patriotic songs and saw lanterns and small fir trees along their trenches. And then what what we have to picture is that there's on one side of what was called no man's land, a stretch of land, Mm -hmm. are the Germans. On the other side of no man's land are the British forces. And they've they've been shooting at each other and trying to kill each other. And then all of a sudden, um, messages began to be shouted between the trenches. And the following day, the British and German soldiers met in no man's land and Mm. exchanged gifts, took photographs, and some played impromptu games of football. They also buried casualties and repaired trenches in the dugouts. And this is, um, I I love some of these stories that were told by the actual soldiers, uh, one of whom was named Colin Wilson. uh, And he said, this is a quote from him, we heard a German singing, O Holy Night, of course, in German. Then after he finished singing, there were all sorts of Christmas greetings being shouted across no man's land at us. These Germans shouted out, what about you singing, O Holy Night? Well, <laughs> we had a go at it, but of course we weren't very good. Anyway, they said, meet us and come over in no man's land. Hmm. When, isn't wow. that incredible? Yeah. yeah. When, when the two sides met, they exchanged gifts and souvenirs. Now, another soldier named George Jameson recalled... Keith and Philip Ridley, two of my section, came dashing into the BA. I don't know what the BA is, but you. But anyway, they came in during the morning and said, "What do you know? The Jerrys—that's the Germans—are out on the top. They're walking about. They're dishing out drinks and cigarettes. There's no fighting going on." Well, we noticed the place was very quiet. I said, "I don't believe it." So Keith and Philip and Leslie went off, and they arrived back around lunchtime. Keith with one of the German hats on. (laughs) Imagine that, the gray thing with the red band around the button. Philip had a water bottle. They've had drinks, they had smokes, and they've been walking about. You just wouldn't believe it. And This This is is a a direct quote. Yeah, this is a direct quote from the soldiers. And this is what uh, is so sad, though. The high commands on both sides ordered an end to the troops when they heard of it. And George Asher, uh, that's another soldier, described how unpopular this made them. We got orders. 
They came down the trench. Get back in your trenches, every man, by word of mouth down each trench. Everybody back in your trenches. There was shouting. The generals behind must have seen it and got a bit suspicious. So what they did, they gave orders for a battery of guns behind us to fire and a machine gun to open out and officers to fire their revolvers at the Jerry's. Of course, that started the war again. Oh, we're recursing those generals. And you want to get up here and do this stuff? Never mind. You're giving orders in your big chateau and driving about in your big cars. We hated the sight of the bloody generals. Isn't that another direct quote? Yeah. Isn't that? I've 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 known of this story for years. I've never really looked into it, and I've never uh, heard the direct quotes that you shared. Yeah, here. that's what made it so compelling. Yeah. Was that? Uh, I also understand the generals. Uh, you know, uh, they are responsible, uh, and they are just afraid something's going to go wrong. Yeah. You know. Well, but the, uh, you know, when I was uh, in the Balkan War, I went to the front with uh, a soldier. Yeah. And, and that very morning, he lost five of his friends yeah. in the. But we had a great conversation about uh, what it was to be just a soldier. Right, and they felt very much like these soldiers yeah. in World War One. They were being ordered by the folks who were sitting in their offices and what so forth and so on. The politicians are bringing about the war that they did not want to fight, right. Right. and they were the ones dying. Yeah, and um, uh, in World War Two, <clears throat> there are similar things that go on. Uh, the the uh, series uh, Band of Brothers which follows uh, Easy Company, the 101st Airborne mm -hmm. Easy Company, uh, actually has a story in which the, uh, the uh, American soldiers overhear the German soldiers sing Silent Night. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's interesting because they don't know what to make of it. Yeah, they didn't have they didn't break out in fellowship as a result of it, but they they were puzzled. Yeah, of these Germans singing Silent Night. Here they are. We're trying to kill them, and they're singing one of our Christmas carols. Right, and you know the Holy Spirit had to be, was active in yeah. both cases. Yeah, it, wars are incredibly wicked and miserable thing. It's just, a, and uh, it, as Francis said, war is always a defeat. Yeah, uh, it, that, John Paul II used that phrase. And I think we, while we do have a teaching on just war, uh, if you go back and you look over the history of warfare, mm -hmm. there aren't that many places where the conditions of just war are met. Um, and then right. you've got the problem of conduct within war. I've never, I've never been in combat. I'm not, I, and I honestly uh, don't know what it would be like to have that kind of pressure on you mm. for, for for sheer survival. Uh, so I, I, I'm always reluctant to uh, offer judgments on. Those who are, uh, I mean, right now we're seeing Israel uh, trying to wipe out Hamas. Well, that's about, uh, violence begets violence, and yeah. love breaks the chain. Yeah. So, 
Yeah. I think of that, too. I mean, they certainly had a reason to be furiously angry and want to defend themselves after the attack Absolutely. on October 7th. Yeah. But at what point do you say, that, you know, what you're doing yeah. is equally wrong and and could be worse when you think of so many innocent people who are affected by it? Um and we and I don't hear Al. Yeah. I don't hear any of the leaders, as was done in the Persian Gulf War, which I wrote about. Mm-hmm. I don't hear anybody asking for prayer. I mean, I hear church people, but I don't hear politicians. I don't hear leaders of countries saying, "We need prayer before we go into this battle." Interesting. No, yeah, that hadn't occurred to me. Uh, I again, for me, I don't the decisions to carry out war uh, are not my decisions. Yeah. They, they are decisions left to the civil authorities, mm-hmm. and this is a, this is not our nation even. Right. So, in our own nation, we have responsibility because uh, we elect our officials. Right. Uh, we we can hold any moral judgments we want uh, on Israel. Um, we certainly know what our judgments are regarding Hamas, but uh, I do think that we have to always recognize those who are making the decisions are the ones that will answer to God, and uh, we, we shouldn't get we, we shouldn't get on our high horse because we're not having to make those decisions. I know. I've th- I've know? thought a lot. That must be incredibly difficult yeah. to have the weight of a decision like that. Well. We're out of time, but we can at least give an exhortation for prayer. Yeah. If, if the uh, civil civil authorities are not praying, uh, we can certainly step in the gap and pray. Right. It was really prayer led by by civilians that that I think shortened that Persian Gulf War. Yeah. We should talk about that again. I know we've, we've touched on it in the, on the air before, but sometime we should go into depth about it. Okay. Um, Love to. Thanks so much, Peggy. It was wonderful to be here. Thank you. Yeah, loved it. And uh, I am Al Cresta, and we'll be right back. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. So when you see these different media outlets working directly in conjunction or conclusion with the government to suppress stories, what does that say to us about the reliability or lack thereof of the secular media? And then this is combined with a report that came out, a survey that was done on media executives. They interviewed 75 media leaders around the country, and they're saying, we're done with objectivity. Well, that's not exactly a news flash, but the fact that they're claiming that objectivity is just no longer necessary, and we are elitists, we know better, and this is what we're going to do, is frightening. And this is one of the reasons that we stress the importance of having outlets such as The Register and EW10 News Nightly and The World Over and Catholic News Agency and EW10 News In Depth. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Dr. Ray Garendi. To vent or not. If I get it off my chest, then I feel better. I've got a vent. Is this so? It's old theory. Somewhat like a catharsis. You've got to purge yourself of these emotions and Lord help anyone who's standing in the way. It's old theory. It's inaccurate. Venting is generally not good for the hearers and it's not good for the venter. Venting 
may be good for dryers. It's not good for people. When we vent, we become more likely to vent. And when we are more likely to vent, we are more likely to hurt and say things we shouldn't say. Careful on the venting. Better to think about what you have to say before you vent. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. There's a there's a there is a book that uh, I've only looked at a few times. I, I have not read it, but it actually is a focus, a, a pretty well researched focus on prayer in the story of America, the role that prayer had played in the formation. Uh, of the nation, and also guiding its future and its destiny. Again, when we say that, we're not denying that uh, Americans throughout our history have uh, not always behaved in accord with their prayers, so <laughs> make that clear. Nevertheless, prayers have been a very important part of uh, American history, at least uh, up to now. We'll see, of course, over the next generation or two if that continues. But... Uh, I do think that we, I, the reason I love the stories in that book, and Peggy Stanton and I uh, will get to it, uh, probably in a, in a series that we're going to do next year. Uh, I'd love to see this connection between the inner life of a people, their, their spiritual interiority, the, their spiritual disciplines, and how those relate to the external world, and in this particular case, uh, the history and evolution of a nation. So that's going to be coming. One of the things we'll be doing next year, uh, Peggy Stanton and I, will be looking at prayer in the story of America. Uh, coming up next hour, by the way, uh, we're going to have a, a guest who's not joined us in the past, Patricia Odie Murphy. She is from the Diocese of Toledo, and we're going to talk about living in virtue uh, what what is was what is virtue? I can remember before returning to the Catholic Church, uh, the evangelical Protestant tradition that I was basically formed by didn't talk about virtue the way Catholics talk about virtue. It talked about the fruit of the spirit. It, you know, the, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long suffering. Okay. So it referred to virtues in that form. But it was a f the fruit of the Spirit, whereas in Catholic tradition, while it is indeed the fruit of the Spirit, the Catholic tradition focuses on our cooperation with grace in the development of the habits that we call virtues. So we're talking to Patricia about that in the next hour. Also, Dr. Matthew Bunsen will be joining me uh, for our weekly look at uh, news from around the world. Uh, one story that has caught people's attention has been a story dealing with some changes in the church's uh, view uh, about regulating cremation. So I know that's one story we're going to get to. And uh, let me also say that uh, tomorrow we will be uh, opening the phone lines to do our annual book conversation, uh, where I ask you to recommend books that you would like Christian the Afternoon listeners uh, to give as Christmas gifts. All right, you know, 
tell, tell us the books that matter the most mattered the most to you in recent times and as I usually say, we take for granted that the Scripture is is an important book that uh, you use, and of course the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So they're kind of excluded. Uh, otherwise, they'd be kind of overwhelmed uh, by the references. But that's coming up tomorrow. So I hope you're thinking about it, and we'll join in. We should have a great time with it. And then on Friday, we begin our annual countdown of the top interviews from 2023. It's always a wonderful time, and I was looking over the list today. We were working on it, and I'll tell you, it's, it's I think it may be our best list ever. Uh, it is. It was difficult to narrow down the top 10, even. Um, but we'll have about 34 of the top interviews of the years. Going through, of course, the remainder of Advent, and then through the Feast of the Nativity, right up to the Feast of Mary, Mother of God, and then we'll begin with uh, programming for 2024. Stay with me. we got another hour ahead of us. I'm Al Cresta. from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And a good afternoon it is. Thank you for joining me today. Talking about the things that matter most and how about virtue? What are the virtues? How are they cultivated? What's the relationship between our uh developing virtue in the work of the Holy Spirit. Some of the topics we'll be talking about uh, in this first segment of the hour, uh, we're going to be joined by uh, Patricia Murray from Toledo, who's been doing great work there with so many uh, parishes, also teaching at Lourdes uh, College. So um, Pat is going to be our guest coming up in the first segment. And then Dr. Matthew Bunsen picks up our weekly discussion of Catholic news around the world and We'll talk a little bit about these new rule, or this these these changes on rules for cremation. And I understand if you're a little confused because I think it was 2016 where we had uh, some all, already we had some changes. And so, but there's a new letter from the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith that says under certain circumstances it may be permissible for a Catholic to keep a small portion of a deceased loved one's ashes in a place, a personal place of significance if certain conditions are met. Well, we're going to take a look at that. And uh, again, Matthew Bunsen joining us to do that very thing. I should also, uh, again, remind you that uh, we're going to be tomorrow, we do our annual uh, book discussion. Phones open up, one eight seven seven five seven three seven eight two five, And uh, I ask you to lay out uh, two, three books that were important to you in the last year. And this is, again, to stimulate thinking for Christmas gift-giving. Uh, books are a wonderful gift uh, to give. And yes, people still read. They still read. And they still read hardcover books, although more and more are using electronic versions. Uh, but that's tomorrow. So we're going to spend time uh, just enjoying that. Now, Friday, we actually begin our annual countdown, top 35 uh, interviews of 2023. 
So that's coming up on Friday. And let me also say today, we want to offer congratulations to uh, Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting, celebrating 12 years with us with 12 stations throughout Oklahoma. Jeff Finnell does great work there and has a wonderful team. So everyone in Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting, congratulations from all your friends here at EWTN. Right now, though, let's go to the headlines. Thank you, Al, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Wednesday, December 13th. It's the Feast of St. Lucy. And today's news is brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance for seniors in need at visitingangels.com. The Supreme Court will take up another high-stakes abortion case, this time concerning the abortion pill Mifeprestone. The court will review a lower court's ruling that banned the abortion pill because of its potential to curtail the use of the drug that accounts for over half of all U.S. abortions. The case is expected to be the most consequential abortion case since Dobbs v. Jackson overturned Roe v. Wade. Pope Francis is celebrating the 54th anniversary of his ordination and is also reflecting on plans for what comes next. In an interview last night, he said he has been working with the Vatican to simplify the church's papal funeral rites. Unlike most contemporary popes who have been buried in the Vatican crypt, Francis plans to be buried in St. Mary Major Basilica, one of the oldest and most prominent Marian shrines in the West. He would be the first pope to be buried there since Clement IX in 1669. More from Matthew Bunsen later in today's program. Israel has started pumping seawater in Hamas's network of tunnels in Gaza. Israeli forces say Hamas used the tunnels to move around the battlefield and to store rockets and ammunition. Israel and the U.S. were among 10 countries that voted against a United Nations General Assembly resolution demanding a humanitarian ceasefire the same day President Biden issued his hardest criticism of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu over what he called indiscriminate bombing by Israel. And longtime New England Patriots coach Bill Belichick is reportedly leaving the organization at the end of the season. NBC Sports says the Patriots made the decision back in November. Belichick led the Patriots to six Super Bowl wins over two decades. The team is currently 3-10. From the AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. Anyone who follows Jesus, anyone who hears his call, will want to, of course, live in conformity with his will, in imitation of his life, and that means uh, learning to live a life of virtue. My guest is uh, Pat Odie Murray. She's the host of The Virtuous Life, which airs on Annunciation Radio through uh, northern Ohio on Mondays from 4 to 5 p.m. with an encore on Saturday at 4 p.m. She's an adjunct professor of theological studies at Lord's University in Ohio. And in her program, she discusses living a virtuous life and really challenges uh, listeners to flex the reason uh, to distinguish what is good by examining the virtues. She also has had uh, wide uh, influence and service in parishes, schools, and universities in the diocese since 1978. And Pat, it's great to have you here. Thanks. 
Oh, well, Al, it's great to be with you. Thanks for asking me to be on. Yeah. Let, let's let's go to this, because uh, I mentioned in the last hour when I was uh, teasing this interview, when I was uh, within evangelical Protestantism, uh, we we did, of course, we were interested in obedience. Uh but we, we, we were interested also in the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering. But we never talked, we didn't use the language of cultivating virtue. And right. uh, so I suspect the reason for that is that many evangelical thinkers haven't really worked through the relationship of our act of obedience with the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces. What does the Spirit right. do? What do we do? Catholics have thought right. long and hard about these things. So talk yeah. to me about uh, what is virtue? How do we cultivate it? Um, well, it's interesting, last night I, I was at a parish talking about this. So the idea that, um, is certainly that we talked about the cardinal virtues and the theological mm-hmm. virtues, and the cardinal virtues come from wisdom, the Book of Wisdom, and Obviously, the theological virtues are mentioned throughout Scripture, but St. Paul certainly right. talks a lot about them. So, um, but I think, you know, we talk about them being a good habit, but that's, that's a, a hard thing, I think, for our secular society to understand. We think of habits as just kind of instinctual things mm-hmm. that we do, like biting fingernails or whatever. <laughs> right. um, and, and so to get people to understand, these are good habits that are formed with intentionality. Um, that that we have to have the desire to want to do the good, um, and so when we when we have this desire that we want to do the good, and we understand um, what the good is again either through the lens of reason or through the lens of of the, the grace of God, um, we start to know that I can start to form these in myself. Aquinas always talked about the cardinal virtues as as something we can come to know through reason and and form in the sense of kind of working hard to bring them to fruition in our lives. But he doesn't ignore the idea of grace either with the cardinal virtues. He said, you know, grace reorients them toward God, not mm. to living just well in the world, yeah. but living well because of God. We live well in the world because of God. And that God will then give us that grace perfects nature, you know, that God will give us the ability to raise up um, our natural kind of relationships that we, we have, that God makes marriages better, the grace of God makes marriages better, makes sibling relationships better, friendships better, all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, you know, the theological virtues is just opening yourself up to God, yeah. you know, and allowing and cooperating with His grace. And I think sometimes a lot of people, they're not real sure what it means to cooperate with grace. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that's something that, uh, again, it's something experiential. You, you work at it, you try to understand it. Uh, I guess, how do, where does the idea of infused uh, virtue come in? Infused virtue would be what Aquinas would call any virtue that is oriented toward God. So he would talk about the theological virtues as infused, because mm-hmm. they're infused with God's grace. That's how they come about. But he would also talk about, because sometimes you, we talk about cardinal virtues, but he would also call them acquired virtues, yeah. because it's something we can work on um, through reason. 
But he would also talk about infused acquired virtues. What what was that again? Infused acquired virtues. Yeah. So that when you add the grace of God to your ability to reason, it, 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 again, it raises kind of everything in your life. It, and use that word loosely, perfects, but it, it, it makes us join our wills to the will of God and, and kind of opens us up to, to understanding even worldly things through the lens of grace. Yeah. Very good. Hey, so when a person is tempted, and uh, again, we'll take, it could be tempted to gluttony, it could be tempted to lust, uh, right. uh, anything that would be counted as sin, mortal or venial, when that temptation comes, how do the virtues kick in? How do you get these things to work for you? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, um, when I talked about, when I talk about, like, temperance with my students, you know, a, a lot of times we, we know the right thing to do, but we just don't do it. Like, right. we know I shouldn't have that extra drink, or I shouldn't, you know, those kinds of things. Yep. So the idea is, once, we're, once we become aware of what is good, then we have to start it, the way we make it habitual is to stop ourselves. I mean, to actually, you know, like, have the courage to say, that's it. And sometimes it's, a, it's you know, asking a friend to help us. Yep. You know, um, how, you know, if, if we're going out tonight, you know, sometimes I may tend to have a few more drinks than I should. Mm-hmm. So, you know, make sure you point out to me that, uh, okay, that's your second drink. maybe this is it for tonight okay let's call it a night you know so you can enlist you know the the help of friends but you know and uh, certainly i even tell um you know a lot of my students the sense that when thoughts of temptation come into my mind at times i'll just use the scriptural line get behind me satan yeah you know it refocuses my thoughts yep and i said and that's because, you know, Aquinas is wonderful at talking about how our emotions can be ruled by reason. Reason can, you know, change the way we think, the way we, um, the, uh, the way we feel about something. And so often we don't do that. We just go with what we're feeling, yeah. and, we, and we don't stop to think it through. And so, and I, I was sharing uh, with the group last night about St. Ambrose and, um, and the Emperor Theodosius. You know, Theodosius had this just awful temper, you right. know. And, and when the Thessalonians, you know, um, killed some of the Roman soldiers, he just wanted to wipe them all out. And it was Ambrose who said, no, 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 right. slow down, you know. Um, and, and, and then when Ambrose left, you know, his his advisors got him all whipped up again, right. and they go out and kill 7,000 Thessalonians. And when Ambrose comes back, he says to him, you know, what? You know, and, and you know, he won't even let him in church, and it takes months, eight months, I think, before he, he comes in humility, and, and Ambrose tells him, you have to write a regulation where you cannot act for 30 days. You know, when these kinds of things happen. And, and I, I said to my, the people, I say, why, you know, why does Ambrose do that? Well, he does that because he knows wrath is Theodosius' cardinal sin. Right. And he's got to get him to slow down and think it through and bring, his God, bring God into the picture. 
And so that whole idea of reacting quickly to things, you know, um, we talk about prudence, we talk about all those things, but I think those things that we have to help people train themselves in, and, and God is certainly a part of that, but reason is too. Yes, and and that's one of the and also one of the things that we do is uh, go over the consequences of one's act yeah. before the temptation is there. And uh, in twelve step programs, uh, often use the question, "And what happened next?" Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> and then what happened? <laughs> so that you end up getting to the negative consequence, and uh, you're asked to remember uh, yeah. what happens when you. Uh, uh, no longer, long longer, are uh, obeying uh, what you know is the good. Uh, exactly. Do you find in in teaching that uh, there's a lively interest among Catholics uh, to learn about the virtues? Well, it, it's interesting when I go to parishes and do presentations on these types of uh, types of topics. Yes, I mean. Um, you know, they're always like, oh, wow, you know, I yeah. never realized that. And, and just that, that, these, that these virtues help us in every area of our lives. Like, you know, I, I talk about um, fortitude and, and Aquinas' concepts of uh, attacking and enduring as being part of fortitude. And what does that mean? And, and I, I always use it in regards to, like, to suffering, you know, and to, to grief. You know, grief is something you can't attack. You know, it's something you have to endure. Mm. And so I, I, I talk about that, you know, and I talk about how and you know, and use that whole idea of, so when you, I think when you pull it into people's lives and when they can see the concepts at work and how they help you, you know, and what is, what is really prudence? And we, we talk about the you know, sub-virtues of prudence. So we go through all of these various things, but every time I, I bring it into to life, because I think that's the hard thing for people to do, is you can talk about theological concepts, and you can, you can talk about Scripture passages, but if people don't see what that means for them yeah. in their lives now, how God uses that in their lives now, then it just stays kind of, you know, out there yeah. in their thoughts, but they, but they don't know how to realize it in their lives, and that's so important. Yeah. No, I, I I couldn't agree more, and uh, I do find that when uh, when people finally get connected uh, to the real life situation, and then to the teaching of the church, it's inspirational. Uh, it can yeah. be life changing. Pat, thanks for joining me today, and I'm looking forward. To, uh, we'll have some conversations in the future. I know, uh, okay. and so we'll talk. Thanks. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Al. Have a good day. Pat Odie Murphy, Murray, excuse me, I used to have a friend named Pat Murphy. Pat Odie Murray is the host of The Virtuous Life on Annunciation Radio, Mondays from 4 p.m. and Encore on Saturdays at 4. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. Household chores aren't just tasks that need to be done. They're a way for family members to learn to take care of each other. Families who create daily working-together rituals don't see tasks like washing dishes or cleaning up the family room or folding laundry simply as things to do. By doing them together, these tasks become a way for family members to say, I love you, and you can count on me to show up, not just for the fun stuff, but all the other stuff too. 
Family working together rituals help families connect around caring for each other and their home. And that's one reason family rituals for working together are such an important part of Catholic family life. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. You know, maybe we need to ask ourselves, do we really know Jesus? Maybe another way to ask that would be, how familiar are you with the Gospels? When I was living in D.C., I was on the plane, taking a late flight home, sitting next to a young girl. She was probably 16, 17. I had my collar on, and we got talking, and she said, um, somehow in the course of the conversation, she acknowledged that she was running away from home and was in the midst of uh, an awful lot of difficulties that were going on. Her story seemed to be remarkably akin to the story of the prodigal son, which we just heard this past Sunday at Mass, huh? And so I started to speak a little bit about that with her. And I said, you sound a little bit like the younger son in the story of the prodigal son. And she looked at me like I was from Mars. And I said, are you not familiar with the story of the prodigal son? And she says, no, never heard it. And I just looked at her and I says, oh my goodness, are you in for a wonderful evening? Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Finding good health care, encouragement for healthier living, or solid spiritual direction can be frustrating. That's why the Catholic Healthcare Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering a health sharing option. Curo's Christ centered wellness services include Catholic wellness coaching, spiritual direction, and a Catholic community supporting your health and wellness needs. Visit cmfcuro.com to learn more. That's cmfcuro.com where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. And joining me right now is Dr. Matthew Bunsen for our look at news around the world. 
And Matthew, as you know, is uh, Vice President and Editorial Director of EWTN News and a Senior Fellow at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. Normally, we uh, meet for Thursday afternoons, but uh, we're meeting on Wednesday because, and I want to remind everybody, tomorrow we're opening the phone lines uh, to hear from you about uh, the books of the last year, or really any books that you would recommend to uh, Crest in the Afternoon listeners or other fellow Catholics uh, for Christmas gift giving. All right, so looking forward to have three, have two, three titles, and uh, we'll open up the phone lines beginning again at four o'clock Eastern time. And I'll be sharing, of course, some of my uh, interest in the books of last year, and maybe some longer ones too, since sometimes books come out. You don't read them. Two or three years later, all of a sudden, a window opens up, and you say, what a great book. So it doesn't have to be limited to last year's uh, books. All right. Uh, Matthew, good to have you with me. Thanks. Good to be with you. I'm I'm tempted to call in myself with some suggestions. Yes, that'd be great. (laughs) Love to have you. (laughs) Well, let's let's take a look um, at—by the way, there's a— biography of Dorothy Day that came out uh, this year, I believe, and uh, that I enjoyed. And I'll be talking about that tomorrow, too. Oh, very good. Um, I was just looking at the article here about Sweden. I mean, Dorothy Day is, you know, has, been, has co- causes been opened up. But this is a question. Why does Sweden honor St. Lucy? <laughs> I mean, she's, it's a she's great an, question. an Italian saint, I mean, right? Yes. Well, I mean, anyone uh, who has seen uh, many Swedish movies, uh, you're probably aware. I think uh, it has been not mocked, but certainly uh, uh, presented even in a lot of uh, American films of young women uh, who wear this beautiful wreath uh, with candles, (laughs) usually candle lit. And... Uh, how they d- managed to do that, I don't know, without setting fire to everything, but apparently not. Uh, and I'm not making light of it. I think it's a beautiful tradition. Sure. But this is something that has, has traditionally been very popular uh, in Sweden. Now, you're absolutely right. St. Lucy, for those who may not be that familiar with her, was uh, one of the great early martyrs, uh, probably in the late uh, 3rd century, from Syracuse uh, in, in Sicily. Uh, obviously, her name, uh, Luce or Lucia, uh, is derived from light. Uh, and in her story, she gave all of her life to the poor uh, and very famously uh, would bring food and help uh, to Christians who were in the catacombs and hiding. And all of this taking place in one of the worst of the persecutions uh, toward the end of that terrible era in the life of the church under Emperor Diocletian. And in order to be able to carry more by tradition, she created a wreath with candles uh, that would allow her to use both hands huh. uh, to carry wow. uh, all of this. And, and as a result of that, uh, people were inspired by this example. And so young women in particular would wear a wreath with candles. Now, it became popular uh, in Sweden uh, in part because of the beautiful example that she gives. Uh, and it simply became popular. We know that... Um, Probably in the the middle of the 18th century, uh, it uh, first began appearing as a a custom and soon took off uh, and is widely seen even today in in what is a very secularized country. 
That's wonderful. I, it, two things come immediately to mind. Um, the Sicilians will be glad to know that they have produced a saint, um, since they are usually under suspicion for being part of organized crime. So <laughs> this is <laughs> Sicilian friends of mine point this out. Um, so there is a saint coming from Sicily. Yes. Um, and then I'm sure women are probably glad that we have the tradition of St. Nicholas coming to bring gifts. Rather right. than the tradition of uh, the uh, fire-lit St. Lucy. <laughs> harder, <laughs> well, harder to imitate. There, there's also some practical aspect to this, that um, usually the Feast of St. Lucy, as you know, it, here we are uh, on her feast, uh, it is one of the shortest days of the year, which huh. means that there isn't a lot of, you got it, light. <laughs> uh, and this is especially true in the old calendar, the Julian calendar. And so as a result, here we had what would technically be the longest night of the year. And so people would find ways to illuminate their lives. Yeah, and I like that. Sure enough, uh, Lucia, light, uh, became this great patron saint, uh, especially in what was then a very rural or a farm-based or a, a agrarian uh, culture, such as uh, Sweden was once. Very good. Um, yeah. Uh, taking a look there, a number of fascinating stories here. Oh, Pope Francis celebrates 54 years as a priest, and um, this was on December 13th, I think. Yes, it uh, was. And so, let's taking a look at this um, earlier today. I'm I'm wondering uh, he, if he had anything to say uh, on his birthday. Well, so his birthday uh, is coming up on the 17th. I mean, excuse me, the yeah. anniversary of his ordination, I'm sorry. Right. Well, no, it's interesting because here we are marking his 54th anniversary of ordination of the priesthood. Uh, that occurred uh, just before his 33rd birthday. So he was born on December 17th, 1936. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're fast approaching uh, the fact that he is going to be 87. And I know there's another story sort of connected with that that I think we need to talk about, uh, which will be the ultimate resting place for the Holy Father. Right. So this has right. been a time, I think, of a very interesting reflection on his part. Yeah. And uh, he has, over the years, talked about uh, his path to the priesthood. Uh, the one that I found especially interesting was that um, his mother, at the time of uh, the discernment of his vocation, wasn't all that thrilled with the idea of him becoming a priest. Interesting. Hmm. And we know that uh, by tradition he, has, he served as a bouncer at one point. Yes. Uh, he, he studied chemistry. Yeah. So he had, let's just say, a lot of options ahead of him. But he felt called. Yeah. And as was, of course, the, the, the tradition and remains a tradition with the Jesuits, when he entered the Jesuits, uh, he had a long period of uh, profession. Uh, with them, which is always the case. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he continued that. Uh, and in 1973, in, in April, I think, he, he made uh, the perpetual profession. But then he continued uh, to uh, study and then was ultimately uh, ordained uh, in December of uh, 1969. So, you know, things are proceeding. Uh, and then you take your final profession. So uh, his journey as, as a Jesuit, I think, in so many ways mirrors... The, the Jesuit, the Society of Jesus throughout Latin America, and in many ways across the world. And yeah. I think that's going to be the source of some reflection uh, long after this pontificate it must, as it will, come to an end. I, am I correct in remembering that he's the first Jesuit pope? 
Yes, he is. That's what I thought. That's why, correct. Why, why is that the case? Why, why is it considered unusual? to have a, a Jesuit pope? Well, historically, um, well, it, it's unprecedented. <laughs> I agree. It's, it's just, it is unusual indeed. Um, there are a couple of reasons, I think, historically. The, the, the first is that as we look through the centuries, the, the Jesuits are late in arriving, so to speak, in, in the relative history of the church. I mean, mm-hmm. we have in the 16th century, they're established. Uh, so it took a while for them uh, to really become established, thanks to the incredible work uh, and the important work in terms of uh, Ignatius Loyola and the founders of the Jesuits. Uh, So it was a relatively young order for some time. Now, it also had, from the very beginning, a profound reputation for learning. Uh, We know that uh, one of the great figures of the Jesuits, Robert Bellarmine, Mm -hmm. uh, participated in a number of conclaves during Mm -hmm. his lifetime. We know that he was considered... Uh, at least in a few of those conclaves, to be a viable candidate. In other words, okay. going in, he was considered papabili. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and there is a notation um, by one of the ambassadors of the great powers of the time that the, there was some concern about Robert Bellarmine because of his genius, but also because they said that he would, in their view, be a threat uh, because he would be concerned only and solely for the good of the church. <laughs> wow, good heavens. What a terrible thing. <laughs> Heaven forbid. Uh, not that other popes weren't, but uh, I think they, in an era in which there was a great deal of balance that had to be maintained in, in terms of the papal holdings, uh, the papal states, um, having someone like Bellarmine, uh, who was so singular in his purpose and was even in his lifetime considered such a great saint, mm-hmm. uh, it's not surprising that he had a difficult time getting elected. Um, at a time when uh, there were many political concerns that had to be made, and again, and this is in, in no way disputing the authenticity or the, the goodness of the popes who were elected in that era. In fact, there were some giants mm-hmm. of the era. Mm-hmm. But the, I think there was some concern that Bellarmine would be indeed so focused on, on the intellect and on the needs of the church spiritually that some cardinals might have been concerned that uh, he would lack the administrative yeah, skills yeah, okay. uh, to deal with so many of the diplomatic and political crises of the era. So that was one reason. But I think also just the novelty of the Jesuits and uh, the fact that uh, there were not that many Jesuit cardinals historically. You know, I don't know him very well, but I I do remember his uh, advice to Galileo. And uh, Galileo, of course, had two uh, trials or two uh, tribunals that he had to answer to. And um, uh, it was uh, St. Robert Bellarmine who it was. Uh, advised him, I believe, on the first trial. And it showed a remarkable grasp of the relationship between uh, the scientific disciplines uh, and biblical revelation. That's absolutely right. He had that famous quote, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, but he said basically that if, in fact, it is proven that all of these theories are correct, then the church will need to look at this yes. uh, and to understand how it is reconciled, Yep. Uh, because there cannot be this contradiction. Exactly. And I think that was very sage advice. But the other thing that, that Bellman was able to do on behalf of Galileo was to 
create a kind of compromise among everyone. Mm -hmm. That Galileo was certainly free to hold these theories, uh, but that he had to be very careful about wandering into the area of scriptural theology in That's particular. Right. That's right. And it's safe to say that uh, had Galileo actually stayed with that, uh, that the, the controversy in the so-called trial would never have happened. Right. It was, it was in the era after, in the years after Bellarmine's passing, uh, that Galileo began most intemperately uh, to try to advance his theories, despite the fact that there was no real scientific evidence to prove it yet. That's it, right. That would come. And as, as it turned out, two of the proofs that he offered uh, were eventually found to be uh, inconclusive at best. Right. Uh, he also had and every a, scientist was opposed to them. Right. His, he had a daughter who was uh, in a convent, and uh, I remember one story of her telling her father to be more temperate. <laughs> So, <laughs> we'll be right back. Dr. Matthew Bunsen, my guest. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? Services.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at stanthonyservices.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org a rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. There's so many issues that need to be discussed when we're looking at this continuing problem of mass shootings. At the heart of it is what's going on with the human person, though. Father John Mercado brings up deaths of despair in great detail in his beautiful Rescue Project series. Or so many young people now, with that survey pre-COVID, were talking about how desperate they felt, how lonely they felt, how isolated they felt, how suicidal they felt. And then we had a recent survey come out from the CDC looking at a similar case with young girls. And this feeling of desperation and loneliness that despite everything they had access to and what they could do with their bodies, this so-called freedom, the world's version of freedom that shoved down our throats every single day, they're still not happy. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern, 
on EWTN Radio. What is prayer? The Catholic Catechism defines prayer simply as the raising of our mind and heart to God. Humility is the foundation of prayer. When we pray, do we speak from the height of our mind and will or from the depths of a humble and contrite heart? It is only when we acknowledge that we do not know how to pray as we ought are we then ready to receive the gift of prayer. St. Augustine points out that when we come to the well seeking water, Christ comes to meet us. He first seeks us and asks for a drink. His asking arises from God's desire for us. God's thirst encounters our thirst. He thirsts that we may thirst for him. Where does prayer come from? Scripture most frequently cites the heart. If the heart is far from God, the words of prayer are in vain. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta, continuing taking a look at some of the stories uh, regarding the Catholic faith around the world, and we were talking about Pope Francis celebrating his 60th, excuse me, um, Pope Pope Francis celebrating his uh, years as a priest, uh, his ordination, uh, which I got confused earlier with his birthday. But what I wanted to come back to was uh, what you referred to earlier, Matthew, and that is he has made some comments about where he would like to be buried. Uh, Comment on his part, because it's up to the individual popes as to where they choose to be buried. Uh, there have been a number of popes obviously buried in St. Peter's. There's a, a large number of them, uh, including most famously now, uh, John Paul II, uh, John Twenty-Third, Paul VI, uh, and, and now, of course, Benedict XVI. So the question for some was where, when it comes, uh, would Pope Francis like to choose as his final resting place? And the assumption was St. Peter's. Or there was this theory a few years back, if you remember, that uh, there was some wild rumor that he was planning to or, or was thinking about having his body taken back to Argentina, which, uh, I, as far as I know, was never really a credible rumor. Okay. But in an interview with the Mexican television program N+, Plus, uh, he stated that uh, he has already actually made plans for both his funeral and his burial. Uh, which uh, is not a surprise to anyone because these are things that you do need to think about. Uh, and he wants to be buried in the Basilica of Santa Maria Maggiore, oh. uh, one of the major basilicas yeah. in Rome. Yeah, that's... And it's an intriguing choice. Yeah. But why, why is it so intriguing? Well, primarily because I think it's a reflection of um, what we have known throughout his pontificate, that he really does have a deep devotion to the Blessed Mother. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. here is one of the greatest churches, if not the greatest church, uh, in her honor. Beautiful. Uh, and it is where he has always made a, uh, a habit of visiting every time uh, that he takes a trip. He goes to the, the beautiful icon uh, called the Salus Populi Romani. Uh, it's Mary Protection of the Roman People. And so when he sets out on a trip, he goes there, takes the trip, and comes back safely. He goes back to Santa Maria Maggiore and prays before this beautiful icon. 
And I think that's an indicator that this church has a lot of meaning to him personally. And from that standpoint, uh, I I think he's making it clear uh, that even in death, when that comes, uh, he's going to do things his own way. And I think that's a, a remarkable uh, statement on his part. Well, there's, there's also a story uh, in the register that mentions that he has been working with the Vatican's Master of Ceremonies to simplify uh, the Church's papal fun- funeral rites. And uh, he's apparently told that Mexican journalist that you were referring to earlier that they've simplified uh, That's the right. Church's papal funeral rites. Not that I know anything about the Church's papal funeral <laughs> rites, but I'm, it, it sounds like something Pope Francis would do. Well, yes, it does. Uh, and uh, so in that sense, he's talked with, uh, his, his name is Archbishop Diego Ravelli, uh, who is the sort of master of ceremonies for all of this. And uh, I think we've had just a bit of a forecast, and I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves in terms of what this might actually look like. But if we go back to the funeral for Pope Benedict XVI, Pope Emeritus Benedict, that was a much more simplified affair. Mm. Now, part of that was a reflection of Benedict's wishes, but I think also we're seeing a simplification of a lot of the funeral rites. Now, there is, uh, I would imagine, going to remain the what they call the Novem Diales, it's the nine days of masses uh, that traditionally follow the passing of a pope. Uh, and it's then up to uh, the Pope to uh, lay out what he would like uh, after his passing. Now, we've seen, for example, in the, the funeral rites uh, of uh, Pope John Paul II, more, I think, of a, a good example rather than Benedict, because Benedict was retired for so many years, where we had the, the body laying in state, mm. uh, and we had the, on the catafalque, we had, uh, as you'll remember, millions upon millions uh, coming to say goodbye to him uh, in 2005. Francis may want something that's a little simpler. Yeah. You know, by custom too, the, the papal funeral has to take place within four to five days of uh, a pope's passing mm-hmm. uh, as part of the wider process of what they call the sede vacante or the, or the interranium. Yeah. So we'll have to see what Pope Francis wants in that regard. So it could be much simpler, uh, but we know now that uh, when all of that is done, uh, he will be taken and uh, placed in rest uh, in Santa Maria Maggiore. And uh, I think you have to go back some years, all the way back to Clement the Ninth, I think, uh, for another pope to have been buried there. And yeah. so that takes us all the way back to 1669. Yeah, yeah. And I think there are, I think, six popes buried in uh, Santa Maria Maggiore. Yes, that's what I've read. What's, what's interesting is that there are, I think, four, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, popes buried uh, in uh, Santa Maria Sopra Minerva uh, in Rome. So the, the popes don't all have to be buried in St. Peter's. Mm. Mm, very good, very good. Uh, speaking about uh, appropriate... Uh, rites for passing. Uh, (laughs) There's a story about uh, cremated ashes, which I thought we had visited this question not too long ago, and we were told that, let me see if I can get this straight, we were told that the, um, you know, ashes uh, of the uh, dearly beloved, the deceased person, uh, could not be kept in a private location 
but had to be kept in a secret place designated by church authority. Now, I see this story that says, under certain circumstances, it may be permissible for a Catholic to keep a small portion of a deceased loved one's ashes in a personal place of significance. Right. And uh, it says, if some conditions are met. Uh, Okay, my first thought is, listen, guys, you just visited this thing a few years ago. Uh, Why didn't you get it straight then? (laughs) <laughs> That's a, it's a fair question, I think. And you're absolutely right. This was uh, discussed uh, in 2016 by the then uh, Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith that had a fairly detailed uh, instruction yeah. uh, when this was first uh, discussed. So in, let's talk about that briefly, because that uh, was Ador Sergendum Cum Cristo. It's basically mm-hmm. regarding the burial of the deceased and the conservation of ashes in the case of cremation. And in that, uh, it made very clear, as you just said, that ashes have to be kept in a sacred place that, of course, would be a cemetery or in an area, as it puts, dedicated to this purpose, uh, again, under ecclesiastical authority. It said uh, also that the reservation of, uh, of the ashes uh, departed in a sacred place ensures that they are not excluded from the prayers and remembrance of their family or the Christian community. Mm-hmm. What we have seen in some ways, and I think um, we, what we see in the 2016 one is a clarification of a process that had been underway for some time uh, in questions about cremation in general. Uh, so we go all the way back to uh, the 1960s uh, that we had the, the, what was then the Holy Office had an instruction basically saying that cremation was itself not intrinsically an evil act. Right. Uh, because there was a lot of opposition uh, to uh, cremation. Now, it, of course, as has been the case, earnestly recommended, and this was followed up by the Code of Canon Law, that uh, the pious custom of burying the dead be observed. But as the Code itself said, and this takes us to 1983, it does not, however, forbid cremation unless it has been chosen for reasons which are contrary to Christian teaching. Now, a lot of questions flowed from that, uh, including the, the, the question, uh, can you spread ashes, for example? Right. right. And that's where there's a phrase that was used in this 2016 instruction that was then picked up and that is of some significance uh, in this latest uh, statement from now the DDF, and that is the appearance of pantheism, naturalism, or nihilism yeah. okay. has to be avoided. And that uh, so we had in this instruction very clear that you cannot scatter the ashes in the air, on land, at sea, or in some other way, nor may they be preserved in mementos, pieces of jewelry, or other objects. Which brings us to this year, uh, when Cardinal Matteo Zuppi, the Archbishop of Bologna, submitted two questions to the DDF based on a lot of questions and pastoral practice that had been raised. The first was... uh, Taking into account that the prohibition against scattering of ashes, is it possible to prepare a defined and permanent sacred place for commingled accumulation and preservation of the ashes of the baptized, indicating the basic details of each person, so in other words, more than one, the memory of their name, similar to what occurs in ossuaries where the mineralized remains of the deceased are cumulatively deposited and preserved? That's one question. The second is, can a family be allowed to keep a portion of their family member's ashes in a place that is significant for the history of the deceased? And the answer 
with some explanatory note uh, from the DDF. So this is now Victor Manuel Cardinal Fernandez, who's the new prefect, and this is signed also by Francis, is yes, that a, uh, a permanent and sacred place can be set aside for the commingled accumulation and preservation of ashes, as long as you don't do not lose the memory of the names. And then here's the one that I think has raised the most eyebrows, that the ecclesiastical authority in compliance with civil norms may consider and evaluate a request to preserve in an appropriate way a minimal part of the ashes in a place of significance for the history of the deceased. And here's that phrase again, provided that every type of pantheistic, naturalistic, or nihilistic misunderstanding is ruled out and also provided that the ashes of the deceased are kept in a sacred place. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a, what we're seeing here once again uh, from, in, in my opinion, from the, the Cardinal Prefect is bowing to pastoral practice. We have seen a similar approach and a similar pattern with some of the other responsa or, or answers to the questions that uh, he's been making over the last couple of months uh, since settling in his prefect. Well, many people are going to ask if uh, Robert De Niro had met these conditions in the movie Meet the Parents uh, for his mother's uh, remains on a mantle in the, in the dining room, which end up uh, getting... <laughs> it's a hilarious scene. We've been Let's just say I've seen the film. Yes. yes. <laughs> so I, I, won't, I won't offer an opinion here, uh, because I don't think Robert De Niro would have asked uh, for uh, ecclesiastical approval. Right. Uh, or, or, and we cannot discern whether there were any pantheistic, naturalistic, or nihilistic <laughs> misunderstandings right. at the time. That, that is right. Uh, but I, I think uh, you've hit on something that's very important now, and that is I would be surprised if over the next months uh, there are not a number of dubia uh, questions Bosses, sent, yeah. sent to the DDF for some additional clarification of what we mean by a minimal part of the ashes in yeah. a place of significance for the history of the deceased person. Uh, how is that going to be played out in pastoral practice? And once again, I have the impression that I think a lot of this is going to be falling on pastors of souls. Yeah. And in some cases, I think potentially putting them in very difficult positions. Yeah, we're just about out of time, unfortunately, because there are a number of really great stories here. Um, and uh, we will be doing our countdown of the best interviews of the year, so you and I won't have another oh, I'm hour sorry. like this until <laughs> the new year, I think. So uh, I hope you continue to have a blessed Advent and Feast of the Nativity, and, and we may talk or communicate uh, off the air as well. I'm so. sure we will, but the, it's, it, it was a privilege always to be on your show, and my prayers to you uh, and gratitude and uh, prayers and gratitude to your listeners. Uh, thanks so much, Matthew. We've really benefited from your uh, intelligence and your wide-ranging knowledge and your manner, too. You've got a wonderful uh, manner about you that uh, keeps us reverent but also thoughtful. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Mother Angelica said that the essence of evangelization is to tell everyone that Jesus loves you. Matt Frad says that it is one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. Are we so full of the things of the world that we can't hear or receive the gifts that God is giving to us? In Isaiah, we hear, The Lord delights in you. I've called you by name. You are mine. You are precious in my eyes, and I love you. 
Well, we often don't want to hear that, and in the Gospel of Matthew, it, it hits us over the head even more that we're invited to be part of the kingdom of God. Jesus is king, and he's come to establish his kingdom. The Beatitudes are the eight roads to God. They lead us with his gifts of the Holy Spirit to become the new person in Christ who will find happiness and bring that happiness to others. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For more about the Beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. Isn't it awesome that we today do not recognize His presence in the Eucharist? Is it because we really don't go to Him in humbleness of heart and say, Lord, I don't believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I want to see you. I want to recognize you. I cannot live without you. Are we saying that? EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Congratulations, by the way. Uh, another member of the EWTN Radio family, Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting, 12 years with us now and 12 stations throughout Oklahoma. Congratu- congratulations to Jeff Finnell and everyone there at Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting from all your friends here at EWTN Radio. I want to make uh, remind you again that on Friday we begin our countdown of the top interviews of 2023, and tomorrow we do our annual open line broadcast where I ask you to recommend two, three books that you think Crest in the Afternoon listeners would benefit from. It's part of, of course, Christmas gift giving as well. It's people looking for ideas, and I love books as gifts. So that's tomorrow. Uh, be ready, 4 o'clock Eastern Time. We're going to open up the phone lines, and I'm looking forward to hearing from you. The phone number will be 877-573-7825. I look forward to hearing from you tomorrow, 877-573-7825. Come with your books to buy for Christmas. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A, Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.